Hello and welcome back to the Cave Escape podcast. I'm Ashton Goolsby. And I'm Caleb Groves. And we are here again with uh, Mr. Greg Wilbur, the president of New College Franklin, one of my former professors, one of Caleb's current professors. And last, last time he spoke with us on the, uh, the quadrivium, the, the last four of the seven liberal arts, we talked with him about that. Today we wanted to go over why, why would we study these things? Why are, why are the seven arts important, specifically the last four? Uh, so again, the, the first three of the trivium, the grammar, the logic, and then the rhetoric. And then the last four of the quadrivium, we have arithmetic, geometry, Harmonia or music and cosmology or astronomy, and just kind of looking at why why are why are these important things to learn? A lot of times now, I, I know, just from back working the drive-through in college, people ask me where I was going, ask asking what why why would I go to a, a school that studies these things? Why why would these mm-hmm. these arts why are they important? I mean, they don't necessarily point me toward any type of specific career right but wh- why are why are they themselves important to study mm-hmm. uh, once again thank you for framing me back on appreciate that um, you know it's it goes back to I think more fundamentally what is important um, mm. and not just from a um, job perspective, but a um, human perspective of of what has God made you to be and do. And I think in a very real sense, and, and here St. Victor talks about this in, in his work, that the seven liberal arts are essentially direct answers to pushing back effects of the fall. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so what what we are trying to accomplish, what we're thinking about in terms of our understanding, growing an understanding of the world that God has made, is is seeking justice, seeking shalom, seeking the restoration of the way that things were meant to be. And the liberal arts, the classical seven liberal arts, are are um, a way to go about that. Wow. And to think about that and how to and how to move that in um, in um, positive directions, our own understanding and our way in which we relate to one another. So, so from that perspective, you know, if if our ultimate sense of why do we exist, why has God made us, what is our telos, um, in terms of of um, of you know why this life, um, part of that is to be part of that is to be like Adam, part of that is to be like Christ, mm-hmm. in in terms of of seeking redemption, seeking restoration. And, and reconciliation of all things, and so that's that's why I think it's important. Um, I know from a um, you know it seems quote a more practical sense you know how are you going to make a living. Um, I think ultimately in the greatest practical sense <laughs> that's that's secondary to what our primary calling should be. Yeah, uh, and and yeah, I know that sounds great you know philosophically <laughs> and so we're like oh yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes yeah but how am I going to pay the bills. Um, I, you know, part of what the arts are getting at too is it is the it is the foundation then for um, other aspects of learning. Mm-hmm. Historically, it would then be where you then studied medicine or law or philosophy or theology. Um, that this was kind of the core upon which the other other uh, studies were based. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason of that is, and I think from the you know, if you want to get kind of the practical uh, answer in terms of the world in which we live. 
working through the seven liberal arts enables you to adapt enables you to be able to think through complex ideas enables you to be able to communicate whether in writing or with other people and to do so on all sorts of different levels i mean i think it's it's, um it's not just the um the ivory tower academic kind of elitist approach i mean it really truly to be able to talk to anybody at any level about anything Mm-hmm. Uh, and to be able to learn and to adapt and to process. And I think, you know, even in from the context of, you know, what businesses are looking for, they need somebody who can communicate well and they need somebody who can adapt to things that are, which are ever-changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the idea of studying a narrow degree of, or having an advanced degree in a very narrow concept, you know, with, mm-hmm. a, with, a, with a doctorate or PhD, you, you know a lot about one kind of sliver. Yeah, right. Um, but with the seven liberal arts, you see how those things interconnect. That's and, a that's a problem my dad's seen. He's a digital content manager, mm-hmm. and they'll hire writing interns over the summer to write. They're they're English majors. They'll hire them, I think, junior or senior year to come write for them. And he said they can't write more than a Twitter post. He said everything they write has to be rewritten. But they're <laughs> they're English majors. Right. They should know how to write. Yeah. And he said that he said. <clears throat> I would rather have somebody competent in there. I don't care what their credentials are mm-hmm. than an English major that can't write right. a yeah. basic sentence. Right. Well, I think you know James Shaw talks about in his book um, The Order of Things that you, know, you can't know anything without knowing everything hmm. because everything is interrelated. Hmm. And hmm. to isolate anything um, unto itself is you're cutting off what it means and how it connects to everything else. Mm-hmm. He also says that that shouldn't keep you from actually learning what you can, because you know you right. can't learn everything unless you're yeah. God. And that's you know in in the in the total interrelation of of how all these things interplay with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, but to at least keep open the door that these things do have connections. There are connecting points. There are ways in which they interrelate, and and in all sorts of un all sorts of unexpected ways that we wouldn't even think about uh, until you actually get into them. That that allows for that that depth of understanding of drawing connections of of being able to do more than just one thing that you've been trained to do and that's mm. i think gives a, a much broader sense of what it means to be human i mean they're the liberal arts because they're the liberating arts uh, it's mm. those things which enable us to be free uh, to be who god has made us to be and that's part of that's why they why they are constructed in that way Interesting. So, well, if we all need to be Renaissance men, then? No. I don't. Personally, I don't. I don't particularly like that idea, um, hmm. because I think the the idea of a Renaissance man was somebody who's good at everything, right? Um, as opposed to, I think, more the more of a Christian concept mm-hmm. of of um, leaning into the things in which God has gifted you recognizing that the gifts that he's given you are for the sake of others, but also acknowledging where you have weaknesses and that uh, God has given gifts to other people to mm. uh, match where those weaknesses are in your life. And, and because mm. of that, you don't have to spend all this time to shore up these weaknesses of, of, of you know, I, I don't know much about investing. I could spend a lot of time to learn about investing. Or... I could go to somebody who does that all the time, and that's what they do, mm. and that's what they're gifted at, right. and who, who is going to know a lot more than I am by any sort of study that I can do. Same thing with accounting. 
you know, I can use accounting software. I don't have to do it all myself. You know, yeah. you know <laughs> I, I don't have to, um, I don't have to be good at all these things. I can acknowledge this is an area mm. in which I need someone's help mm. and let them use the gifts that God has given them and not steal literally from the, uh, I think in the Westminster catechism talks about in this kind of language, steal from them the opportunity to use the giftings and callings that God has given them. Hmm. By trying to take that away from them, I like that. Yeah, I like that. Because I often hear people try to talk about. I remember, like in high school, hearing people talk about classical education being. You're earlier like a Renaissance man. You can now go out and do everything. But then hearing you explain it, uh, specifically like student weekends and things, it was always refreshing to come back and hear you say the acknowledgement of you. You study everything, but the acknowledgement of there's going to be things that you're good at, and there's some things you're not good at, and it's wrong to deprive somebody who's better at something else than you the opportunity to use the gifts they've been given, but also to help you. Because right. you're helping them by letting them help you with right. what they're good at. Right. right. And, and the gifts that we've been given are not for our sake anyway. Mm. They're, they're to give to others because mm. other people right. need them. Mm. Yeah. 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 But it also enables you, too, in relationship with one another. Um, we're talking about in, you know, in the classroom that you don't have to be the person that always has the right answer. Right. And mm. In fact, you shouldn't be. You know, and that, um, and to truly, you know, as Bonhoeffer talks about, the, uh, uh, the ministry of listening. You know, being able to actually listen to others and to hear what they're saying and to hear what they're not saying and the questions beneath the questions and to, um, and, and to be able to engage in that way. And to know that, you know, um, you know you're not always going to be, you're not going to be the life of the party. Um, you know, <laughs> somebody else may be that person. That's their role, you know. Well, what's your role? You know, and instead of being envious of that or trying to be somebody you're not, what does it mean to be comfortable and what content? Use a good scriptural word there to be content in who God has made you, um, and to and to serve and love others from that place, and not try to strive after being something or somebody you're not, and but to appreciate those in others. And I think that you know that ultimately that eliminates the idea of jealousy, that eliminates the ability to um, to serve one another, and to do so graciously. Gratitude is an important part of that. Yeah, you know, I think it's a lot easier to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. Um, because, you know, if you weep with somebody who weeps, you can be kind and empathetic and, mm-hmm. you know, you look good. Um, <laughs> right? You that know? makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But to rejoice with somebody um, because they have done a good thing, even if it meant that you came in second and they came in first, yeah. is hard. Hmm. Um, but it's rejoicing the thing itself and in their accomplishment um, as something separate from your own sense of ego, your own sense of um, of of, uh, of trying to trying to get ahead or be perceived in a particular way. It's a hard one to. That's why a hard one to teach to nine year olds. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, I think yes. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm sure people are out there thinking, or you're maybe thinking, boy, we've gotten a far cry away from the quadrivium at this point. I don't think so. I really believe that the purpose of the quadrivium is um, is training and education in virtue. And I know virtue is kind of a buzzword these days in educational circles in terms of right. of um, you know we train for virtue and and you know, I'm not sure what the curriculum looks like for that you know in terms of what what everybody kind of means by that and it sounds good and it's important because I think it is you know you're talking about the aspect of not just a curricular decision. Um, but actually what it means to be more like Christ, to grow, to be uh, more into the image of Christ. Uh, but I think that's part of what, um, kind of intuitively, instinctually, I think that the quadrivium was about. 
and that's a little harder to put your finger on but i think that's um when when you see then you're talking again about the invisible attributes of god and his nature and character from romans one and how that's revealed in the things that he's made and how the quadrivium kind of gets at that directly then you're you're engaged in a theological pursuit um, in which you're connecting these things and understanding these things uh, not slapping a bible verse on it um, mm. but but the inherent richness and wonder and awe and gratitude of it is uh, of who god is and what he mm. has made um, and the fact that he, he has uh, he has placed you in this particular time in this particular place for particular reasons and and that is awe-inspiring and and the gratitude and the graciousness which should flow from that um, gives a lot of different perspective in terms of, of you know your own role or lack of role the humility of that and what it means to serve others and what it means to give your life away and to mm. daily take up your cross and so it, it, it's it's um <clears throat> I think that's kind of the fullness and the point of where the where the, all of this leads um, I also think too, you know, in the in the recovery of the quadrivium. I mean, I think the 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 question that everyone wants to know is what's it, what's it for? I mean, even in the sense of the recovery of it, it's like, okay, what were they after? How did they get there? Um, what has changed that we can jettison, and what are, what do we need to keep? What are the things that we can only get at through the quadrivium in some sort of historic recovery? I mean, these are kind of the questions that people mm. kind of ask, and I think you know, there's a point to those questions. I, I'm not sure those are all um, the right questions to ask. Um, I think there are things to consider certainly, but it's also a, a rather utilitarian approach, mm. and it's also taking an analytical approach. I mean, part of part of the problem of analyzing everything is that you're looking at it from the outside. Yeah, and I don't mm. think really anybody's in a position to sit back and look at the quadrivium, me included, to look back at the quadrivium and say, "Oh, the quadrivium is for this," and I can see how this here develops students in this particular way, and here's how we should go about this. Mm. I don't because we've not been educated through the quadrivium. And I think it's going to take time. I think the students who um, are part of the early recovery of the quadrivium are going to have a deeper and greater understanding. Um, and they can push the conversation forward and continue to push the conversation forward uh, to subsequent revisions and understanding over, uh, over you know, a couple of generations of students to really fully understand um, why and how. Um, I think we can intuit a lot of that. We can see how some of that works. We can see um, experientially uh, and objectively some of those connections. But to truly inhabit the quadrivium, we would have had to be educated thoroughly in the seven liberal arts uh, from early on, mm-hmm. and um, and we haven't been. And so you know we just need to acknowledge that, and then move forward as best we can, such that those who take up that mantle. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, can push that forward uh, to another generation of students, to another generation of students, and and to continue to to you know the fullness of what that should and could be as we get farther down the road. Um, so, so one thing I did want kind of come, want to come back to, which when when we showed you the notes for the last episode, um, you kind of critiqued the way we had originally put the trivium and the quadrivium together. So we had said, which we got from reading The Lost Tools of Learning, 
where I, I got that idea when I put it in there was the 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 first three are kind of subservient to the other four. Because you've got the other three, and the other three are to get you to the four. Mm-hmm. And that we also said that uh, with the Dorothy Sayers, it, it lines up with the childhood stages of development. You offered you offered us a, a critique of that that mm-hmm. way of looking at it. Could could you kind of repeat that again? Yes, um, um, I think so. Uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's there's um, Dorothy Sayers is helpful, and I think there's a lot that we can be grateful for in terms of of that particular essay. Um, at the same time, she kind of completely dismisses the quadrivium um, and kind of sets it aside. And I think she's also working within a unique definition of the trivium um, that has been kind of latched onto in various ways. Uh, I, I know from my own experience in um, in teaching homeschooling my daughter, um, if we had waited for five or six years through the pole parrot stage of just having her memorize things to answer all of her questions about why, I think she would have been completely frustrated. I mean, because mm-hmm. immediately she was beginning wanting to make connections mm-hmm. and to understand things. And so, you know, in the midst of introducing new ideas and aspects of, of knowledge and, and memorizing things, we try to draw those connections to give a greater sense of why this is important. You know, she stumbled in math because she wanted to know why. She just mm-hmm. didn't want to memorize facts. She wanted to understand how this connected in, in particular ways. Um, and I think I think those are very valid questions. Of course, it was easier, you know, in homeschooling one that it would be a, a larger class, you know, right. to, to answer all those questions. You got to, you know, you, you have material you have to get through. But but there's um, it, it's not such a clean dividing line. And I think too, when, when you look at the the trivium in terms of stages, how far does that go? You know, are we are we saying that after the rhetoric stage, you now hit the arithmetic stage? <laughs> followed by the geometry stage, you know, right. um, or is that just something that is kind of trivium, you know, particular understanding of the trivium? Um, like I said, I would argue with that. I think that there have been several articles and people kind of pushing back on some of those ideas, grateful for the conversations that, that started, but not being slavish to um, strict ideas of um, of learning stages. And, and seeing the integration of, of, um, of those things um, in a more holistic way. I think I used the analogy uh, last week with, um, you know, the, 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 quadri- uh, the quadrivium is almost looking three-dimensionally. You can enter into, mm. um, into any point and you, know, you can see that almost like a three-dimensional shape that you're holding and, and moving around different facets. I think the same is true with regards to the, the seven-level arts. Mm. I mean, you're, you're entering into this understanding, this knowledge, this wisdom um, through these different portals. Mm. Um, and they're not just singularities. I mean, there, there's a connecting point. And, and there's, you know, it, it, when you, um, how we represent knowledge is kind of fascinating. And there's, there's a series of three books, and I can't remember the author right now. Uh, one is um, uh, representing knowledge in, via circles. One is representing knowledge via trees. And um, the other one is um, uh, more of an integrated sense. And mm. the, the idea that in, using historic examples that, that some trying to outline some particular things um, ma- makes more sense to show them in circles. Some make more sense to show them as branches of a tree. Um, other mm. things have all these interconnections that you draw lines between. And, and we, we, we've become such linear thinkers, I think, that um, yeah. mm. you know, we see things as a list and we automatically uh, put those in some sort of hierarchy. Hmm. 
And so whether yeah. that's whether that's the uh, the top of the list is the most important or the bottom of the list is the most important. Um, I think I said last week as well. We don't we don't see the first ten numbers as um, as a collection of numbers that have inherent qualities. We see them as a succession of numbers. And while some things do move one to the other, you know, instead of instead of seeing those um, instead of seeing that as a succession, um, but seeing that as a collection, I think makes a big difference. And so. You know, the, the the difference would be well you start at the you start with grammar mm-hmm. and then you move through this list. Mm-hmm. Right. As opposed to um, how all these things interplay. I mean I think you know and we even within schools or movements or so forth that are very um, um, well that are more strict with regards to ages and stages type of thing, you still wind up teaching math and music and science. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, on a young level, so it's not just that that these are all set aside for a, a later time. What generally gets aside set aside is teaching those from a truly classical perspective. Mm. And so we 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 use more um, we use math curriculums or science curriculums that, um, and it, and some are good in their ways, or, or they or you know some are from Christian resources, and so they have you know things that are integrated within the content, um, but they're not really thinking about those arts from a um, from a holistic quadrivial mm-hmm. liberal arts kind of perspective that is one thing I'll say I've noticed because um, one of the subjects I got uh, uh, halfway through the year last year got caught into I had to teach science and one one thing I noticed with the, with the curriculum we've been using is it's it's got uh, I think it was the last time you described it is almost like a simplistic way of looking at it. The sun rises and it's beautiful, therefore God is beautiful. It, it's, it gives them those kinds of things, but not necessarily showing them kind of from a more quadrupant based, this is what makes this beautiful. This, the beauty is it works and it reflects God in these other ways. Mm-hmm. And that was one thing specifically I, uh, I, I tried to pull the astronomy in mm-hmm. as we spent a quarter yeah. on that. But we, we really heavily that we don't, we don't really use their book, and I've, I've had most of the sources I'm drawing off of are the ones that we use in cosmology. Like, I love the H.A. Ray book. We pull, <laughs> yeah. we pull yeah. that out, but kind of taking them through that, and it, it was it was funny because it's one of those things that a lot of times I've, I've I feel like people sometimes say, "Oh, it's, it's too much for a kid that young." That they they enjoyed it, in spite mm-hmm. of most of them said, "Well, we've, we've done this before. We don't want to do it again." But seeing it that way mm-hmm. that they even themselves said we, we haven't seen it this way this is exciting it was mm-hmm. exciting to them mm-hmm. to see it that way so I, I feel like sometimes we even discount what what little kids are capable of understanding yeah. and enjoying right we, we think they we have to dumb it down for them somehow make it basic but as you were even saying with math I've had students ask particularly mathematically gifted students ask why, why is why do I have to learn to divide this number according to this rule? And then I've had to wrestle. Do I spend the time explaining to them? In a year or two, you're going to move on to the this. And I find if I do that, they not only understand it better, but they 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 enjoy it and they're more willing to do it because they they see it relating. Yeah. Well, and you know, one of the first things we see God doing is division. Mm-hmm. In Genesis I don't one. Think about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, hey, what do we do with that? I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a whole other thing. Yeah, well, yeah, I think you know when you when you when you start thinking about um, you know so the sun rises is majestic, like all the implications of that with regards to 
the earth spinning and orbiting mm. and the sun spinning and orbiting yeah. and where we are in relationship to the sun in terms of of not freezing or burning up and mm-hmm. where the the tilt of the earth is at that particular season and you know all those types of things that all those all those um elements that t- you know we we take the sunrise for granted mm-hmm. but it's an amazing it's an amazing thing and yeah. and even mm-hmm. you know even um even the aspect of calling it a sunrise um has a geocentric nature to it yeah yeah um because we're seeing the sun doesn't rise the sun is there you know the earth is moved that's why but you know from the from, but and that's oh, that see that's part of the beauty of this too that there is um there are different ways and understandings of, of how to approach um things which are true but seem to be incongruent so for example from a from a geocentric point of view um either earth being the the center of of the solar system um and we see you know medieval you know, we see the spheres related to to the earth in uh, in particular ways um including the moon and the sun and the, and the visible planets um and the way the stars move from from our perspective of where we are um you know we know that not to be scientifically how it happens mm-hmm. right but from a philosophical or theological view, does the earth serve the sun or does the sun serve the earth? Mm-hmm. You know, did, did God create the sun to serve the earth, which is the habitation of his image bearers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and so when you, when you see the truth of that from the perspective of how that shows up in literature, how that shows up in symbolism, um, this aspect of the sun rising, you know, as you just mentioned, yeah. um, the sun rising in the east, all the implications that ha- that has with regards to the imagery and the symbolism of Christ. Um, that there's these things are all inherently inherent together. Now, does this, you know, does the Earth actually rotate around the sun? Yes, mm-hmm. um, but from our perspective and how we see that and how the sun serves you, how the outer planets serve us from keeping us from being bombarded by asteroids. How the other planets and their gravitational um, pulls keeps us in our particular orbit that allows for life on Earth. You know how the uh, how the the constellations move through the various seasons. I mean, all those things are are um, you know have the the scientific uh, explanation truth, but also they have the philosophical theological truth as well. Mm-hmm. And those aren't combative. I mean, the, I think you can't really understand just the scientific without understanding the philosophical and the theological. Um, yeah. But to understand the theological and the, and the philosophical, you also understand you, you understand how that's actually working. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so kind of kind of from there too, the, the understanding of the inner working of everything. Um, we're, we're also talking um, some c- kind of us separately, but then also with you a little before too on, there, there's you said there's a little debate of is is cosmology... Is that kind of, I guess for lack of a better term, the, the, the end point or the, like the culmination, <laughs> the, the culmination the final, I guess, of, of the other disciplines or is, is it harmonious? You said there's kind of a case, com- and I, I realize I'm probably not using the best wording on that, but you said there's a case that could be made, it could be harmonia mm-hmm. rather than cosmology, that 
is kind of a culmination of the right. other ones. Yeah, and different medieval sources have those listed in different orders, and so mm. it, it's a uh, it's a long-standing argument. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, and I think part of it is there's so much overlap as well. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. I mean, you can't talk about the great dance in cosmology without talking about music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, what are you dancing to? You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but but the aspect of music harmonia uh, um, as a representation of uh, an understanding of order. I mean, you know, medievals, medieval composers, musicians, saw their role as reflecting the order of the cosmos and then sustaining the order of the cosmos through the music that they were creating. Hmm. And so there's a very much connection of music is, is interrelated to and interlaced with the cosmos. And so in some ways it doesn't matter. Um, I think, you know, you can get at both of those in particular ways. I mean, we have, we have the discussion every year with um, should this concept be taught in cosmology or should this concept be taught in harmonia? <laughs> because it could be, legitimately be taught in either one. Wow. You know, so yeah. how, you know, where, where does this most naturally fall with regards to the other things that we're, you know, covering in, the, in particular particular course? So, I mean, there's, there's a reason for that. I think there, there is a sense, though, in which harmony, you know, especially as we talked about last time, justice, shalom, is an overarching concept that... Um, that connects all of the quadrivium, including cosmology. Uh, and so from that perspective, it makes sense. I think when Luther talks about the fact of um, um, that um, music is next to theology, I think what he's potentially talking about is that music as the fourth quadrivial art is the one next below theology. So after studying music, then you move into theology. Oh. So I think he, you know, he would have sided with the idea of music being the fourth, and he, and you look at his theology and his writings, and he's he's uh, talks so much about music and the importance of music and how um, ministers of the gospel should be able to sing, that that's just as important as anything else. And so there is there is that interconnection there as well. I, I, all creation sings. I mean, we see again and again in the in the Psalms. Uh, you know, the Psalm nineteen, with um, how um, creation displays um, the glory of God without words um, but day by day there you know there's that interconnection there of of um, of the cosmological and uh, and the musical so I think ultimately it doesn't it doesn't necessarily matter in one or the other I, I think what concerns me more than anything as a musician is how far away from our understanding of music we've got hmm. And so whether it yeah. comes third or fourth, um, what we think about what that entails is so far removed from what the early church and the medievals or the ancients would have thought um, that it's, it's almost unrecognizable. And, and I think that's, that's, more, uh, that's even more of, of greater significance. I mean, when you think about what most... I mean, you know, I, have, I have two degrees in music. This is what I was taught. This is how I was taught in terms of the kind of the standard way. You, know, you think about music as music appreciation, music history, music theory, and not much, not much more than that. And in in particular ways, I mean, music, music history was basically. Um, I mean, yes, we talked we talked very briefly, very briefly about Boethius and the music of the spheres. So that that was a that was a check mark in my head of like I want to know more about that. We never did learn any more about that. But you know, <laughs> music history was to get to the symphony. You know, that's that's the apex and the high point of music history. But when you think about music appreciation programs or or um, uh, what most kids are taught if they're taught music at all, 
it is post-enlightenment, secular, mm. instrumental music written for the concert stage. Mm. Yeah. Prior to 1,500 years worth of music before that, which was primarily liturgical, vocal, um, written for a worship aesthetic, um, and written with regards to the, um, the theological life of, of, the, of the believer. Yeah. And that's a, that's a whole different approach and a whole different understanding of what music is and what it's for. And I think we, even when we give a nod to music, that it's, it's a nod to a more of a post-enlightenment kind of view. We don't look at the idea of, is, can you say that music is moral or immoral? I'm talking about music without words. You, can you talk about music as being good? ethically good uh, mm-hmm. can you talk about music as being true mm-hmm. um, we relegate the idea of music primarily to beauty right um, mm-hmm. which is something we don't do almost with anything else I mean but we don't think about that and I think part of that is because we don't know how to talk about music anymore from a musical sense and so we mm-hmm. talk about it from an, an aesthetic sense which then leads into a whole subjective conversation about what right. do you like versus what do I like uh, what yeah. you self-identify as in terms of your musical choices, and what do I self-identify <laughs> yeah. as in my musical choices? Because it gets that personal. Yeah. Like, you know, if 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 I uh, criticize a musician you don't like, it's almost as if I've criticized you. Yeah. You take it personally. I mean, not you personally, personally, but you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. one takes it personally. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Caleb is particularly personal about this. <laughs> yeah. no, but it, it's so much inherent a part of our identity that we we don't have that separated in terms of what our um, what's an objective sense of what music is for and uh, what's it tell us and that's, and that's part of what it got me interested in the quadruple to begin with mm-hmm. specifically with regards to music as a musician mm-hmm. and specifically with regards to what does that mean um, with worship you know what um, um, what does that entail with regards to the music that we utilize in, um, in, 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 act- in worship services so all those things have been interrelated for me for years, um, and then seeing how those things interconnect and, and, and pursuing the other quadrivial arts um, as a holistic um, holistic approach. Not to go on too much of a, a rabbit trail, but you were talking recently about, um, when I sat on the Harmony a few weeks ago, you were talking about Handel's Messiah, how it was originally meant to be performed versus how we perform it now, where it's, mm-hmm. it's this big concert piece, and I actually got the opportunity, I think it was two weeks ago, to go to the Skirmerhorn mm-hmm. with my aunt had an extra ticket. And I went, I went and saw, I'd never seen Handel's Messiah live, but I, I, um, I told my dad afterwards, I loved the, the ending, I think it was my favorite, that whole third section. But I said, it, it hit me because I believe the words they're singing are true and they're beautiful. I was even telling Caleb, I said, a lot of, there's some things I caught he did in there with, it's like some brief moments of counterpoint or it almost looked mm-hmm. like the cellos and violins were fighting at one point, just the bow movements. And I, 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 I thought it was beautiful. But it, it, the thing that hit me afterwards was that if it's for these people, it it's most likely more of the opportunity to say they performed this well-known piece. But how many of them actually were they believed the words that they were listening to or understood the the gravitas mm-hmm. of what what Handel had put mm-hmm. to music? So yeah, they're having you're saying having that difference of the, even Handel the time he wrote it to the time now. It's it's a concert piece to be performed. At Christmas and Easter, mm-hmm. in a concert hall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big shift. Yes, it, <laughs> yeah. it is. Yeah, and and that's not to dismiss all of that. I mean, there's, there's still. I mean, that's a whole other long conversation. But <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it, when you think about yeah, what the implications are in with regards to uh, um, 
how a piece like that gets performed and why, as opposed to its intent or, you know, look at box cantatas or, mm. or, uh, you know, other works that, that have a liturgical purpose, um, and would have been performed in a much different kind of way that less showy, less, um, yeah, less showy, more of mm. um, more to get to the heart of the text, because um, I mean that was Handel's intent, um, not to have a bunch of notes, but to actually mm. convey you know, <laughs> convey the, the 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 gospel words that are the part of the libretto. Mm. Mm-hmm. So um, that kind kind of tying that a little bit into we we talked a little bit in the the first episode, just mentioned we we're, were talking about why why we're called the cave escape where we picked that name kind of the allegory of Plato's cave it kind of you escape you see the light of philosophy and then you go back and you can't return back and you people fight you come with you but we were talking then about the idea of what um, I've always heard it called the, the great conversation mm-hmm. um, could you could you kind of explain to us a little more what what, what kind of is that we, we, <laughs> we briefly just mentioned that it was a thing and yeah yeah what is that idea? Right. I think, you know, there, there are several terms that get thrown around. The great books is one of them, which yeah. mm-hmm. is, is more um, more associated with Mortimer Adler and um, what his collection of the great books. Um, and there are some there's some pros and cons to that. The great conversation, I think, is a better term. Or even the great questions. You know, mm-hmm. that, it, that it's... Um, but the idea that, especially with regard, you know, if you use the, the nomenclature of the great questions... It, these are significant questions that people have been wrestling with forever, for as long as there have been people, and and uh, and their writings, in their um, and their art, in their philosophy, and you know, as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun, and so even mm-hmm. you know, even recognizing um, you know new philosophers that come out, it's really just a recapitulation of you know, an idea that somebody else had already articulated maybe centuries before. Mm. But, but the idea that, that these, um, these um, writings, these works, these books, these stories, these philosophies, these works of art are in conversation with one another and that there's a foundation in which they're building and that there's, um, uh, you can trace ideas and you can trace the development of ideas and you can uh, trace... Um, references and concepts and and that's you know you, this, this is a beautiful thing to see and, and then to enter into that and, and it's um, I, there's a modern postmodern whatever era we're in right now I lose track of <laughs> <laughs> what we're supposed to be but right. you know the, the, I, I don't think originality is a biblical concept I mean <laughs> and I think we have this especially artistically but but even with regards to thought, I mean, that's that's the whole, basically, that's the whole idea in, in higher academia as well. You have to have an original thought to do a dissertation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, but the idea of being original is meaning that you've got to do something that nobody else has done. Or in, in the arts, it means that, you know, it, it, it is it is distinctly unique. Right. Which means that you're setting aside or ignoring or trampling on everything that has come before. And it, for the sake of novelty... It's something. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of modern art, or um, even aspects of modern fiction, it's not so much that the work is inherently good within itself; it's that you're the first one to do it. Hmm. Yeah. You know, if I if I were to, um, um, well, any famously, um, 
Duchamp did, you know, submitted a urinal as a as a work of art to a <laughs> to a museum. Um, he got away with it because you know it was him. Mm-hmm. If, if I went right. to a museum and tried to do that, no one would want it. You know, and so it's not you, you can't duplicate it that you can't duplicate that. I mean, think of the difference between when um, um, God's talking to Moses about the construction of the tabernacle, and that part of the gift to uh, Bethel and Ahab is the gift of teaching, to pass on the things that they know, the skills that they have know, so that other people can do it. And mm-hmm. so what you have is this long, beautiful long lineage of craftsmanship. Uh, or of reference to other works, or this conversation that happens within the arts or within philosophy, um, you know, you're responding to things or to questions or ideas that you're wrestling with um, from what's gone on before, but you're not doing it in isolation. Um, I think that's where most people get into a lot of um, intellectual difficulties: is that they are um, not doing this in conversation, either with the conversation of the past of what's already been written, or with conversation with others. And you don't have those checkpoints. You don't have those, um, uh, you know, those guidelines to say, yeah, that's an interesting thought. It's been tried and rejected for all of these reasons. You know, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's very understandable why you would get there, um, mm-hmm. and not to dismiss it out of hand. I mean, that's part of the beauty of learning conversation. It's not just here are the things you need to go A B C D and and now give that back to me on a test, but like actually let's wrestle through these ideas, and like yeah. you know, okay, that's an interesting idea. What are the what are the implications of that? You know, what did mm. other people in the past have to say about that? Um, mm. What other co- what other conversations is that idea in um, in relationship to? And um, and that's kind of the beauty of the fullness of that. Now you know it, that has to be that has to be done well. That has to be cultivated well. And there are um, there are ways in which that's done uh, better than others. Um, but the idea of that of entering into a long-standing tradition and opportunity um, of um, of discourse is a, is a beautiful thing, I think. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our time. Thank you again for coming on and talking with us these Absolutely. Uh, past two times. <laughs> um, thank you all for listening. Uh, tune in next week. We'll have more for you then. Till then, take care. <laughs>